You know, the song we just sang has a bridge in it that says, My heart will sing no other name but Jesus. What's interesting about that to me is, and what we're talking about today, is we're continuing this series of messages talking about worship from the Old Testament and how we can relate to that and what it means for us today, is that that phrase, that one phrase, my heart will sing no other name but Jesus, addresses one of the biggest themes throughout Scripture. In fact, it's a theme that if you talk about worship in the Old Testament, you cannot avoid it because it is right there in your face all the time. Because the people of God in the time of the Old Testament consistently let their hearts and their worship give praise and honor and glory to names other than God alone. I uh, read a story this week about a, a dad who's a pastor, a guy named Kyle Eidelman, in a book he wrote called God's at War. Um, where he went to say the goodnight prayers with his daughter. And he sat down on her bed and he was sitting beside her. And as they were talking back and forth, she said, Dad, hey, hey, Dad, Dad, do you want me to hear me recite the Ten Commandments? And he said, he could tell. She was just fired up about this. Hey, can I recite it? Yeah, absolutely. We love to hear it. He goes, have you memorized? She goes, I've memorized them all. He said, well, go ahead and say them. So y'all want to just go ahead and do that? Okay, we won't do that here. All right. But she said them. You know, she started off with, love the Lord your God. You know, that there are no other gods before me. Don't make for yourself the shape of an idol all the way through. And he got to the end and he said, I realized there was a teachable moment here. And he said, she was so excited. She had said all Ten Commandments. And I just said, honey, let me ask you a question. Have you ever broken any of those? And he said the look on her face was similar to the look on my face when my wife asked me, who ate all the Sour Patch Kids I bought for the kids? Right? She was trying to give an answer without incriminating herself. And so he said, I just decided to help her. I said, have you ever told a lie? She said, yeah. I know you hadn't murdered anybody. Have you ever gotten so mad at somebody that you said you hated them? Yeah. you ever not honored your mother and father? And Yes, Dad. But, but Dad, Dad, Dad. He said, what, honey? He goes, she said, I know one commandment I have never broken. He said, well, what is that? And she said, I have never made an idol to worship. He said, at this point, I was a pastor with my daughter, realizing that if I went the direction I wanted to go, she would hate having a pastor for a dad for the rest of her life. Because I wanted to tell her that you can't break the other nine Without breaking that one. Don't make for yourself anything carved out of wood or stone and worship it as an idol. And when we hear that, even today, we think, well, I'm glad we don't have to deal with that one. I mean, I have not been tempted. I don't know about you, but there has been no temptation in my life in recent weeks or years to carve a statue, put it in my living room, and start bowing down to worship it. Anybody had that dilemma? It's outdated. We don't need it. It's not there. It's not a problem. Woo! I got one out of the... I'm not good on the other nine. But that one I'm good with, except we're not. We think we're okay with it, but we're not. What's interesting about idolatry 
is that it's the number one issue in the Bible. It is mentioned or referenced in every book in the Bible. Fifty laws in the first five books of the Bible are about idolatry. And some of you here today, even as I'm beginning to talk about it, are checking out already because you think, we don't have to worry about it. It's one of the four sins in the Old Testament that have the death penalty attached to it. One modern guy said that idolatry is huge in the Bible. It's dominant in our personal lives, but we think it is irrelevant. And we are mistaken. When you begin to look through the lens of what the Bible describes as idolatry, which we're going to talk about today, you begin to realize there is a war going on for the hearts of all of us. And it is a war of competing gods. And as those gods compete for our attention and our desire and our finances and our time and our energy, whoever wins that war is going to determine almost everything about us, about who we are and what we're becoming and what we're worshiping and who we're with and how our relationships are, what our career looks like, what life in general is. It is a battle that is raging continually in our lives. One pastor has said that the deadliest war being fought today is a war that most people don't even realize is going on. If you've got a Bible, I want you to turn it to Exodus chapter 32. If you don't, I'm just going to kind of tell the story today. invite you to take it home and, and look at it when you get home. Exodus chapter 32. Somebody tell me what the book of Exodus is about. The Exodus. Listen to that. You're good. All right? Exodus from where? So where are they leaving from? Egypt. Who is it that's leaving? Israelites. And so you've got the Egyptians have been uh, holding on to the Israelites for a long, long time. You've got the Israelites that are coming out of bondage. How long had they been in Egypt as slaves? 400 years. That's a long time, right? Do we have anybody here 400 years old? Okay, y'all don't think that's funny. I think that's funny, all right? Nobody, right? Hey, America just celebrated a birthday, right? July 4th. How old was America? Anybody remember? 237. Miss Allie Decker right there on the third row. Good job. You know, it's easy for me to remember 237 because I was born in 1976. I'm a bicentennial baby, so whatever my age is, just add 200. That's what America is. So think about this, okay? Almost twice as long as America has been a country. Anybody ever sat through an American history class? There's a lot in there, Amen. Amen. Y'all want another one? We can go, all right? A lot in there, right? So imagine, almost twice as long as America has been a country, the Israelites were in bondage. Were they excited to be free from slavery? For a moment, yes. They leave. You remember the great, all the stuff. Moses goes in, let my people go. No, the plagues are going to come. There are frogs and locusts and boils and blood and all kinds of stuff. And the last one is, God comes through, wipes out the firstborn of all Egyptians, livestock, everything, gets rid of them. The Israelites are let go. They flee. They get a little ways away. And all of a sudden, Pharaoh goes, why did I let them go? So they chase after them. God's providing cloud cover for the day and fire by night. They get to the Red Sea. Suddenly, they're trapped between the Red Sea and the army coming on. God splits the Red Sea. They go through the Red Sea. They get to the other side. They celebrate. They have this great moment. And then Moses says to them, I'm going to need a minute because God only gave me steps one and two of about an eight-step plan. i got to go talk to God. So Moses climbs the mountain, gets on top of the mountain, and he stays with God. How long do you stay with God up there? Forty days, not 
What does God give him while he's up there? Ten Commandments, but not just the Ten Commandments. He gives him Exodus 20 through 31. Ten Commandments, rules, regulation, different things that are there. And not only does he tell them about it, it tells us in Scripture that he writes them with the finger of God on tablets, front and back, and Moses is to carry those down. In fact, if you look at the end of chapter 31, it says this verse, the last verse in chapter 31, if your Bible's open, you can read, if not, just listen. When he finished speaking with Moses, who's the he there? God. When God finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the testimony, stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. So here's the thing. Moses is there 40 days, 40 nights. He gets all this information from God. He's downloaded. He's got it on the tablets. And he's getting ready to go back when God kind of taps him on the shoulder and says, you got to go now. In chapter 32, look over at verse 7. The Lord spoke to Moses. Go down at once. I'll just give you an idea of what this is like. This is kind of like the phone call from the principal to a parent. You know what I'm talking about there? Some of you parents know what I'm talking about. Some of you kids act like you don't, all right? Your son's been brought to the office. Your daughter's been brought to the office. You're going to have to get down here. Go down at once for, and listen to how he says this. This is God talking. Your people, you brought up from the land of Egypt, have acted corruptly. You know what's interesting about that? Whose people are these? They're God's people. Who brought them out of Egypt? Everywhere else in Scripture, when you get to the Psalms, you get to the prophets, they will always say, your God that brought you out of Egypt, who was your God, this is your people, the Lord. The Lord will say, my people. But here, they have turned so quickly that God says, they're your people, Moses that you brought out of Egypt because they apparently have forgotten who I am. What made God so mad? What have they done? What have they done? Go back to verse 1. The people get impatient. Now I know y'all cannot imagine what an impatient people look like. How many of you here ever struggle with impatience? Everybody get your hand up, all right? Quickly, get it up quickly now. Okay, I don't have time to wait around here. All right. We all struggle with impatience, right? We have things that we want to get done. Well, the people get down there. They've been brought to this place. They camp down at the moment. And God and Moses are having this 40-day revival on the mountain. And the people don't know what to do. Where's Moses? About day 30, they start going, Are we sure he's coming back? We ain't seen anything from him. About day 35, the rumors start about, you know what I heard happened up there? Well, I heard from somebody over there that they told me he's over here, that somebody over there said that he's not coming. Well, go tell Aaron, we got to go. We can't sit here. So they go to Aaron, and what do they ask Aaron to do? Aaron, we need a God. We need you to make us a God that will lead us the rest of the way. We need something to, to, to symbolize what has happened here. We need you to do that. And Aaron, Moses' right-hand man, literally Moses' brother, says, Okay. Take all your earrings off, take all your jewelry off, put it, bring it in the fire. They put it in the fire. It says in Scripture that Aaron himself crafts and molds this statue of a cow. Anybody ever seen a cow? 
Does it look like something to worship? Not the wisest choice, but that's their choice, all right? It says that when they set it up, Aaron said, This is your God, Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And verse 5 says, When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. He made an announcement. There'll be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. Now, just a quick note. Usually when you see the Lord in Scripture, it's talking about the Lord, Yahweh, God Almighty. This is not. This is talking about a festival to the cow. Early the next morning, they arose, offered burnt offerings, presented fellowship offerings, big-time worship service. The people sat down to eat, drink, and then got up to partay. Is that what your version says? It said, mine says rebel. What does yours say? Celebrate. All right? The modern Lyle paraphrase of that is they had a party to end all parties. Now, we're going to talk in a few weeks about the fact that worship is something that is celebrative, that it is something joyful, that it is something exciting, that it is something that will bring emotions of joy and before you. Listen, I've just spent a week at Center Kid. Those kids have no trouble when the joy is in the house of letting people know. That's what these people were doing. In fact, now this is interesting. We'll look at it a little more in detail in just a second. But Joshua, when Moses gets ready to come down, Joshua is kind of up there near him. He's kind of keeping watch for him. And Joshua says, Moses, it sounds like a war is going on down there. And Moses says, that's not war. They're worshiping. When was the last time it got accused of us being so loud? It sounded like a war was going on. I mean, they are, now it's the wrong thing they're worshiping, but they're having a good time. So Moses says to the Lord, listen, because God says, I'm done with them. In fact, God says, Moses, you go down there, I'll destroy them, and then we'll make a new people just out of you. You and me were good. I'm not good with them. They're your people now. I'll destroy them. You and I will do this all together again. Moses says, don't do that because the nations around, look at Moses' concern for the glory of God, will say, why did he bring them out of there just to destroy him? That was ridiculous. Give him a chance. Here's the thing. Chapter 32 shows us how easy it is for idolatry to capture our heart and for us to turn away from the Lord. We're not talking about people that are far removed from an amazing work of God in their lives. Right? What had just happened to these people? What had they seen? That hint, I've already talked about in the sermon. What had they seen? Red Sea, the miracles, the plagues, God showing up, amazing things happen. I mean, they get a, they got a fire by night to guide them, a cloud to cover them from the sun. They got miracles happening all around them when they're not being touched by these plagues the Egyptians are having. They see a split, a sea split open. They walk through on dry land. The Egyptian army is enveloped. The most powerful army in the world is destroyed in a moment with their Pharaoh in a flood that the Lord brings. They have seen God move and 40 days later they're ready to reject it all and move on to something else. So what does that look like today? Because my guess is you don't have a golden cow sitting in your living room that you are bowing down and worshiping. If you are, we really need to have some discussions. But I guess that's not it. And yet I believe that idolatry is still the number one issue that people have when it comes to following the Lord. 
I looked for a good definition of idolatry today and I couldn't find one, so I found eight. All right? Here they are. I think one of them will hit you somewhere. An idol is whatever your heart clings to and relies upon. Whatever claims the loyalty that belongs to God alone. Whatever we sacrifice for and pursue. Whatever is more important to you than God. Whatever observes your heart and imagination more than God. Whatever you seek to give you what only God can give. Whatever is so essential and central to your life that if you should lose it, life would not be worth living. Whatever you spend, most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources, without second thought. Our culture, in general, asks us to make idols of stuff around us all the time. And they're everywhere, potentially. Your idol might be your family or your children or your career or making money or achievement or critical acclaim or saving face or a social standing or a romantic relationship, the peer approval, competence, security, comfort, beauty, brains, politics, our nation, a social cause, morality, virtue. Whatever it is that you place priority over God becomes an idol in your life. And oftentimes the issues that we have in life go back to an issue of idolatry, not just things that happen. For instance, imagine a man, well-dressed, put together, shoes shined, suit on, tie sitting, waiting on a pastor, as the pastor comes into the office for the morning, said, I I had an appointment, he's there five minutes early. He's the kind of guy that's never late to any appointment, never been late once in his life, is always five minutes early. Not five minutes early is late. They sit down in the office and they begin to talk, and the pastor asks him all kinds of, you know, basic questions, how you, how's all that? And just out of the blue, the guy says, Pastor, I'm here because I'm concerned about my family. So is this what this is about? You're concerned about your family. Well, why are you concerned about your family? There's a problem known, not that they know of yet. And as the story unfolds, you find out that this very successful businessman has just been caught by the Internal Revenue Service and has been cheating on his taxes in a major way for several years and is going to spend the next 20 to 30 years paying back what is necessary to the federal government. And he says, I don't even know why I did it. So the pastor says, you mean beside the obvious issue, the obvious issue that's there about financial gain, he goes, I didn't even need it. I'm a millionaire. My family's well off. We've got things saved up. I didn't need it. And they begin to delve deeper and deeper. They find out that as they're talking, he asks him a question. Well, let me ask you a question. You said it's not financial gain, but do you like making money? He goes, oh, yeah, I like making money. Have you always liked making money? Oh, yeah. Would he say that it is the goal of your life to make money? He goes, I would be comfortable saying that the goal of my life is to make money. He said, would you say that it is your desire that you you think about how you're going to make money? He said, yes. Then he said, would you consider the fact that making money is your God? I don't know that I would go there. pastor just says, if that's what you think about and your desire, and it's the number one priority of your life, Guess what? It's your God. Or another pastor that gets a call from a mom and dad concerned because their daughter that they love that's 
just out of college, has a boyfriend, and she's going to move in with the boyfriend. And they just say, listen, I, I need you to call um, and just talk to her. Tell, tell her the mistake she's about to make. And so the pastor attempts two, three, four times. And finally, on the fifth time, she picks up and he says, listen, I, I need to talk to you. And she said, listen, I don't really need to talk to you about that. I, I know what you're going to say. And he says, well, tell me what I'm going to say. And she goes through all the reason that a pastor would give for not moving in with a boyfriend. And then he says, well, let me ask you a question. He says, you think I'm making a big deal out of nothing. What if you're making nothing out of a big deal? And have you considered what it's going to cost you? She goes, like, apartment costs? He goes, I'm not talking about apartment costs, but, yeah, it's going to have more costs for you. But I'm considering, have you considered what it's going to cost you in your future relationship with your husband? She goes, well, I don't know that I'll marry this guy. He goes, you're right. Statistics say you won't. And if you do, you won't be married very long. But I'm talking about the cost it's going to cost you with your family that's not approving of this. And of the relation with the future spouse. And he said to her, it seems to me that you have set up a dichotomy, a decision between this guy that you claim to love and want to spend all this time with and are emotionally and physically attached to and the God who says that that is not what needs to happen right now and he says if that is the decision you're making then you have chosen the guy over God so he has become your God or the 30 year old dad that walks into the pastor's office and won't even make contact eye contact with the pastor. He's kind of shuffling along and he's set up an appointment. I need to talk to something about something. And the pastor knows by his mannerisms and by his tone what exactly he's talking about before it ever comes out. His first words are, I hate the internet. The pastor just says, when did it start? Well, it started at 12. I saw something I shouldn't have seen. It's in a magazine in my friend's house. So basically, you've been struggling with this for 20 years, 20 years. He says, I hate it. I had this relationship. I have to be on the Internet because my work depends on it. But I hate it because I know where it's going to lead. The pastor just looks at him and says, you think you've got a pornography problem, but you don't. You've got a worship problem. You've replaced the desire to seek after God with the desire to fill it with something else. Idolatry is around every corner what are the first two commandments no other gods what's the second one no idols you know what psalm 106 19 and 20 says about this particular incident that we just read it said the people made a calf at mount sinai they bowed before an image made of gold they traded their glorious god for a statue of a grass-eating bull think about that they traded the image Or they traded their glorious God for a statue of a grass-eating bull. And somehow we look at them and think they're completely different for us. Our bulls are just different. It's the house that we're constantly upgrading and decorating and doing something to. So that everybody will think we've got a tidy, good, nice house. It's the promotion that gives us the corner office instead of stuck in the cubicle where we've been. It's acceptance in a fraternity or a sorority or a social club that we've dying to get to. Or an in-group of people or a friendship that we've been dying to have. It's a team that wins a championship and our life depends on the outcome of a sporting event that we're not even involved in. 
It's a body that is toned and fit. And we spend all of our time thinking about how to get it more perfect. I want you to imagine for a moment an oak tree. You know what I'm talking about, an oak tree? Those big trees, all right? And the one thing that are amazing about oak trees is not just what you see on the surface, but what if erosion starts happening, you see in the roots. I want you to imagine that oak tree is... Um, on every branch is dangling enticements to you. Things that you can pull off and take in and become a part of, and that each of those things have roots that go deep down into idolatry. You see, any time in our life we give precedence to anything over God, we have committed the sin of idolatry. And the reason the Old Testament is so adamant about it is because the God we serve deserves and requires complete and exclusive worship. Part of the reason that idolatry is so evil is because of a one-word description of who God is. If I were to ask you, describe God to me, how would you describe him? What would you say? All right, maybe we need to do a series on God. How would you describe God? Holy. Come on. Omnipotent. Everlasting. Somebody gave the answer that I'm going to talk about in a minute, so I'm not going to talk about it because they stole my thunder. That's all right. Awesome. Loving. Healer. Redeemer. All present. Always there. But in the Ten Commandments, a name is given for God and a characteristic that we don't think about very much. You are to have no other gods before me because I am a jealous God. What do you think of when you hear jealous? Good, bad, what do you think? High school girls. Thank you, Jeff. That's from our student ministry. Is jealousy bad? Sometimes. Not always, right? Let me give you a scenario for you, all right? And I can only do this because Susan's not in the room yet. She's doing our extended care downstairs with the children. But imagine for a minute that you are out in the community and you and your family or you at lunchtime or something go out to a local restaurant and you get in the local restaurant and you see me sitting at a table with another lady beside Susan. And it's just the two of us and we're looking across at each other and we're holding hands sitting there. You walk up to me and you, well, we won't say what you might say, but let's just... Tone it down a little bit, all right? Depending on how close you are to Susan, depends on what you would say. You say, what's going on here, Pastor? What, what about Susan? And I say, oh, we're on a date. What about Susan? Oh, we've been out lots of times. And then I go home, and Susan's at the door. And she says, how was your date, honey? Did you have a good time? You think that's going to happen? You do not know my wife if you think that's going to happen. No, why? Because in a marriage relationship... If there is a chance that somebody is coming after Susan, I have every right to be jealous. In fact, if you're not jealous in the midst of that, you don't really care about your spouse. And Scripture teaches us that God is jealous for us. I heard a story about Michael Jordan. You know who Michael Jordan is? I'm just making sure that we hadn't somehow had this idea that LeBron James has taken over. All right? Y'all know who Michael Jordan is, right? There's a story of Michael Jordan, and he was with an executive of another club. The guy's name was Fred Whitfield. You won't 
know who he is, but he's an executive of the club. He goes into his house, and Michael Jordan, what, what's the shoe company that Michael Jordan works for? Nike, right? Michael Jordan went into this guy's house, and he's talking to him. This is in a book he wrote. And he's talking to him, and he says, hey, we're about to go out to get something to eat. He says, I need to grab a jacket. Jordan forgot a jacket. He said, all right, go to my closet and get a jacket. Well, Jordan goes back there, and the closet is divided in half. Half of it is Nike, and the other half is another shoe company. The guy's sitting in his living room when Jordan walks back carrying all the other shoe company's stuff. Puts it in the floor, goes to the kitchen and gets a knife and begins to shred every bit of it. He says, I'm calling my rep tonight. You'll have all this replaced with Nike gear tomorrow. Don't ever wear anything else if you want to be my friend. And they went out to supper. All right? He's saying, if you're going to be with me, it's an exclusive thing. God is exclusive with us. It's not because He's insecure or petty, but because He loves you. The reason God has such a huge problem with idolatry is because it is an all-consuming love He has for you. He loves you too much to share you. One of the differences between Christianity and almost every other religion is God passionately pursues us. This week at Century Kid, um, we, the theme of the week was out of this world. We talked about God's creation. And a lot of times we think about God's creation, we think about earth. But we talked about the galaxies. We talked about universe. And one of the most amazing things we even talked about, and it's one of those things that I don't think the kids fully grasp it, Because I don't fully grasp it. This idea that God cared so much about us that in the billions of stars and planets out there, He stepped foot on ours because we needed redemption. He has every right to be jealous for us. So here's the question we're going to end with today. What's your idol? It's not a golden calf in the living room, but what is it? What is that thing, that person, that relationship, that endeavor, that choice that you have placed priority over the Lord? Some questions that kind of help you diagnose that. What disappoints you in life? What do you complain about? What do you sacrifice for financially, time, energy? What's your sanctuary? What is it that when you have had a stressful day, when everything has gone wrong, what do you run to? Or who do you run to? What infuriates you? What are your dreams? Anybody remember who it was that was on top of Mount Sinai with Moses, kind of there as a watch? Who was it? It was Joshua. And Joshua 24, he's getting ready to go to be with the Lord. And he stands up before the people, and it's his last kind of sermon before him, and he says, you have a choice to make today, and here's your choice. You can choose to worship the God of our forefathers before Egypt, a long time ago. You can choose to worship the gods of the Egyptians. You were there for 400 years. Some of that got into our system. You can choose that. You can choose to worship the gods of the people that we're around right here and right now. Or you can choose to worship the Lord your God. Here's the thing, everyone makes a choice. 
forefathers, Egyptians, culture here and now are God. Now, many of you that grew up in church know what Joshua says next. He says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So here's the question. Are you willing to let the Lord have your idol? Do you know what uh, Moses did when he came down from the mountain? Anybody remember? He gets down there. He's mad as can be. What does he do to the calf? He destroys it. Pulverizes it into rubble. And then crushes it. And dumps it into the river. And makes them drink it. That's, that's taking care of it, right? You want it so badly, here it is. Then he gets the worship leaders. The musicians gives them a sword and tells them to go through and kill a bunch of people. We're not changing Jeff's job description yet, all right? Because God is a jealous God and does not tolerate idolatry. And if you think that you can live your life with idolatry seated in your heart and give glory and praise and honor to the Lord, you're mistaken. So what's your idol? And are you willing to let God take it, destroy it, pulverize it and put it in the water and make you drink it to be done with it. Let's pray.